Would you please turn with you in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Exodus in chapter 29. We'll be looking at just a very brief passage of scripture this morning. And encapsulates so much. Roughly about nine or ten chapters of the book of Exodus are consolidated really in the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. It's really at the end of chapter 29 in Exodus. Verses 43 to 46 will be the text that we'll be sharing together. By the time that Israel has come to this place um, that is found actually in chapter 25, they have, they have gone through the Red Sea, they have eaten the bread and they're eating the quail every day. Uh, they have found water from the rock, first water that was bitter turned sweet, and then water from the rock. And and now, in, in beginning in chapter 25, God lays out instructions. He lays out His desire, His heartbeat, is to be with His people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God desires to be with you? God does. He, he loves to be with His people. He designed us to be with. God loved His Son so much in time gone by, and forever, in eternity gone by. God loved Jesus' his Son so much that He wanted to make more sons who would emulate His Son, Jesus. So God desired to make a people. He desired to make mankind so that He could have reflections of the One who He has set His love upon, that is namely Himself and Jesus Christ. And so we are a part of that love of God. We are created out of the love of God. And God desires to be with us. And so now, in, as time has unfolded in the history of mankind, God now returns to this earth in a physical presence, manifesting Himself in the cloud. And in Exodus chapter 25, He begins to give instructions to Moses on what it's going to look like when God is here on this earth. And so He instructs Moses and Aaron to build a sanctuary, a place where He can be manifest and present with His people. And so in Exodus 25, no need to turn there, verse number 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's desire, is to dwell with us. But in our passage, Exodus 29, verse 43 to 46, we read this. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, like Moses, we come to You. We ask that by Your Word You might speak to us and bring us life and hope. We're like people in a wilderness and and unless You speak, we have no understanding of where to go, but, but we also have no understanding of who You are if You don't reveal Yourself to us. And Father, we thank You for Your Word and we we confess its sufficiency. We confess its transparency, its it's willingness to convey to us an accurate reflection of who You are. And so this morning, we, Your people, assemble to the Holy Mount. We ask that You would speak to us. We might need to hear Your voice through thunderous clouds, or we might need to hear the still whisper. But let nobody in the hearing of the Word of God this morning be deaf unto that which You have to say. And Father, we pray that You would sanctify this hour and sanctify this place as You did the tent. May it be sacred and holy unto You and Your purposes and Your presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are three times in Scripture where God announces that He will dwell with man. The first is here in Exodus. This is the first recording in Scripture of God's intent 
to dwell with man. His, his clear revelation that it's his desire to be amongst his people. Okay, So you, you've read the Bible all the way up to this point and it has not yet been revealed that God, that God has a plan for being in the middle of his people's lives. The second place where we find this announcement that God is going to be essentially apart from the prophets is, is found in Luke where the angel Gabriel announces to Mary the miraculous birth of the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who will be birthed through her. Knowing that God does not meet with man except in the temple, Mary asks Gabriel, how can this be? The far greater question than it first appears. She asks, how can this be? since I know not a man. But the foundation of her question really lies in her inability to comprehend that God will be made manifest in flesh. And by the way, if you can easily explain it and easily believe it, I, I would like to meet with you. If, it's, if you have grown so familiar with the teaching and the doctrine of the incarnation that God could be with man, that you have dismissed it into the margins of your belief, that you no longer wonder and are drawn to awe and worship that God would be with us, then I would suggest to you that you need to revisit the wonder of true worshipers in Scripture, Mary being one of them. God has always only existed in the heavens and in the temple in Mary's thinking. But the angel Gabriel replies with words that are reflective of the incident here in Exodus. The Holy Spirit responds to Mary in Luke 1, verse 34 and 35, with words that are reflective of, of Exodus. The Holy Spirit will come upon the tabernacle and dwell in the midst of the children of God. This is reflective of, of what He would say to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and what will be born of you will be conceived of the Holy Spirit. You see, the incarnation of Christ into sinless flesh is the foundation for the mystery of God with us. The foundation for the name of the second person Trinity, Emmanuel, God with us. It is one of the greatest mysteries of the God with us. It's one of the greatest mysteries in the universe and is not so easily understood by any of us. And beyond the mystery of God with us in the Emmanuel, we are also mystified that this God who would dwell with us would be crucified. And then would be risen from the dead in great victory. All of these really are a mystery that unfolds in the flesh and the appearance of God with us in Jesus Christ. But do you know that, that God would dwell with us did not unify us to Him? It would be the crucifixion that would create the capstone of unification with God. See Romans 6 and Colossians 2. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, God would not only dwell with us, but He would be in us. His death and resurrection made us one with Him. This is important for us to understand that many people will ascribe and many people will confess that yes, certainly God is with us, but listen, that God is with us is only applied through the God with us, Emmanuel, the work of Jesus Christ. And through God's instruction to Moses in Exodus 25-30, through 30, God indicates that there is something both common and beautiful about His provision of this meeting place. There is something both common and beautiful. It is common, it has goat skins, has badger skins on the outside. It doesn't look like anything, anything great. The resources used to build the tabernacle are sourced from the spoil from the Egyptians when Israel left, as you remember. Remember that when they left Egypt, it was as if Egypt was sort of bribing them. And there was a work of God, I think, in their hearts, begging them to leave uh, by means of extravagant gifts of, of much gold and wealth and precious stones, among many other costly gifts. Israel spoiled Egypt as they left as a sign of victory. Well, these gifts... God would tell Moses at the beginning of Exodus chapter 25 would be the providential means by which the people would now call upon the Lord. They would now be called upon the Lord to construct the tabernacle. By the very gold of Egypt that they had plundered as they had left, by this very gold and by the textures and by the very riches of Egypt, now the tabernacle would be built. Where were they going to come up with curtains and where were they going to come up with 
with all of these textiles and, and gems and gold, not of the wilderness. Another picture of incredible redemption and provision. But here in the middle of the barren wilderness, without any country to plunder, Israel would raise up a sanctuary for the presence of God, for the God of heavens, using the very signals, gold and these things, the very signals of his merciful deliverance and abundant blessings of provision. Every time the people of Israel would look at the tabernacle, they would remember this was built by the means of God's mercy. We shouldn't have had this gold. But every time they would look upon these these things, these fixtures and, and such of the tabernacle, they would be reminded this was provided for by God's merciful redemption from Egypt. From the outside of the tabernacle, it looked like a normal, it didn't look like a special meeting place. It looked like just a normal tent covered in badger and goat skins. It looked much like an oversized tent of a nomad lord. It was nothing to behold from the exterior, truly. But the inside of the tabernacle was decadent. And as you read in the pages that follow in Exodus chapter 25, it is replete with expertly hand-carved fixtures and furniture, gold and silk woven tapestries, and really on these tapestries, depictions of heaven's greatest worshippers, cherubim, are woven into the, the veil and the curtains. Symbols of prayer, symbols of provision, atoning mercy. The tabernacle was nothing like man had ever seen. Every color, blue and purples and gold and pearl, every color, every dimension, every texture did not compete with one another, although common, although common wilderness wood overlaid with gold, none of it competed. None of the textures, none of the, the dimensions, but they only harmonized the pattern that would become known to us as the pattern of Christ's person and work. It was the blending together of all of these elements, yes, minerals and textures. It was the blending together of, of heavenly majesty with man's mediatorial necessity. Aside from the striking beauty of its inward elements and its partitioned spaces was also its selected servants, the priests. Aaron's consecrated sons. All of it. Every detail of the tabernacle. Every loop of the outer coverings and inner veil. Every stake in the ground. Every dimension of its fixtures. Every movement of the priests. Every vestment of their sacred robes. Every detail and every schedule of their sacrifices. All of it was an unmistaken indication of God's wise and gracious design for redemption through His means alone. His way for atonement would be the only way. And do you know it was the glory of God to testify of His merciful presence that was accessible through blood-bought atonement for the sins of His people. The tabernacle could be, think of, could be thought of, the, the activities could be thought of in, in, two, in two categories. Number one, God's acts towards man. And secondly, man's acts towards God. But here as Moses receives these instructions, we need to understand there is something magnificent taking place that is in the thunderous words emphasized by bolts of lightning and inscribed on tablets of stone, God spoke to Moses giving these instructions. If someone was to speak with such emphasis, if, if, if I was to speak here this morning with such emphasis as to have drums, for example, beat with everything I would say to emphasize what I had just said, or some, some sort of a great sound and great experience to emphasize every sentence I said, you would likely think that something powerful is being conveyed. Well, when God conveyed the instructions for the tabernacle there at Mount Sinai as Moses met with God, the punctuation 
of every instruction was felt in the knees of every child of Israel, every person of Israel at the bottom of the mountain. Thunder and lightning accompanied God's voice as he spoke to Moses. But do you know, if someone was to speak with such emphasis, then the hearer should hear and obey. But even more than that, if someone were to speak with the shaking of heavens, then it speaks to their consuming passion and their resolve that there will be done. God's will, ever since the beginning of time, is to be near His people. To be near people like you and I. That's God's desire. That God wants to be near you ought to evoke many responses. But today we'll look at those responses later, but first we'll look at the desire of God, the resolve of God to be with His people in the wilderness. And so you may be here today and think that you're someone who God passes over quite often. You might think that you aren't important to God. Whatever background you have, whatever education, whatever circumstances have befallen on your life, you might think that you're not, you're not very important to God. You're maybe lost in the wilderness of life or, or feel lost in the crowd of the people of God. You're doubt-ridden and you're anxious. And sometimes you eat the bread of blessing and you drink the cup of provision, but you are still stumbling and wandering around and you very much feel like what you hear of the people of Israel reminds you a lot of yourself. There's really good news for you today. And I could really just almost end the sermon with this statement. There's really good news for you today. And it's found in the testimony here in Exodus, which is one of many testimonies that reveals to us that God knows exactly who you are, what you are like, where you are, And God has committed Himself to know you. God has committed Himself to know you. He has committed Himself to being with you. And He has committed Himself that you would know Him. No matter who you are, what you look like, what's going on in your life, how anxious and how fickle you may be, God has committed Himself. He has resolved with thunderous emphasis. He will know you and you will know Him, child of God. God must provide the way for us to be with Him or we would never find Him on our own. God is gloriously committed to the word with. It is one of the greatest words in the Bible, with. And God is gloriously committed to that word. Well, in today's passage, we find that God is essentially saying, I am here. I am here. And if we will take to heart and believe upon everything those words give to us, we will know God. And that is, by the way, why He is here. He is here to be known. So let's look this morning at four movements of the Lord's resolve to meet His people. Four movements of the Lord's resolve to meet His people. Number one, we see in verse number 43 that there is an intention of God to meet with His people. There is, there is a drive, there is a, a passion of God to meet with His people. Listen, God is passionate about meeting with you. No longer was God going to be separated from His people. No longer was God going to be far away. No longer was He going to be seated in the, in the highest of heavens. Now He would be with His people. And they're not even in a palace. They're in a wilderness. But even beyond that, spiritually, they're far away from Him. But He is gathering them to Himself. And many have alluded to the fact that in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses meets with God in, in the, at the burning bush experience. Remember that? 
And that God reminds Moses of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and his people. And the covenant is very reflective of the marriage covenant. And that is that God intimately, He loves, He desires, He is passionate about this unconditional love that He is setting upon these people. He has chosen them out of all the people of this world and He has set His, His unshakable commitment unto them. He will love them in the wilderness. He will love them in Egypt. He will love them in faithless Canaan. He will love them because He loves them. They are His bride. And in Exodus chapter 3, we find this covenantal language being used to Moses. And now here at Mount Sinai, God unpacks it for Moses and says, this is, this is how it's going to look. My marriage covenant with them is going to look like this. I'm making a vow to them like a groom makes a vow to his bride. So now God isn't going to be, going to be satisfied with sitting in heavens of heavens and, and transcendent, but now He is going to be imminent with His people. He's going to be present. He wants to be with His bride. And so, no longer will He be separated from His people in His presence. And He will set this place, this meeting place, as a place where He will be and His glory will make it a sacred place. Listen, it is God's glory to make you a sacred person. It is God's glory to set you apart for His purposes. It is God's glory manifest. It is one of the ways in which He reveals His greatness. You say, what is the glory of God? The glory of God, one could say, is the, is the accounting. It is the reckoning. It is the list of all of the perfections of God. All together, all of the perfections of God in one word, glory, His purity, His trustworthiness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His justice, His holiness, His eternality, His aseity, His transcendence, His imminence in every facet of the nature of God all summed up in one word, glory. And what does God's glory do for His children? God's glory, as He approaches you, changes you because you won't be the same anymore. And so He makes you sacred. He consecrates you. When this kind of God moves towards you, it changes your life. His glory will make it a sacred meeting place and it won't be man's works. You see, what made the tabernacle special wasn't the gold that was pillaged in Egypt. What made the tabernacle very special is that it was not sacred because man had built it and it was unique. It was, it was, it was sacred because God's glory was set upon it. And listen, child of God, you are special not because you're special. But you're special because God has chosen through Jesus Christ to set His glory upon you. Your works don't make you glorious. Nothing about you makes you consecrated. But when God called you out of the darkness of the kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness, and He translated you, that is, He citified you, He made you a citizen of the kingdom of light, He consecrated you. And He made you a very sacred place of meeting. God had set His people apart by the means of His promise to Abraham. And now God would graciously not only reveal Himself to them, that is, that has happened before. God revealed something of Himself to Noah. God seems to have revealed something of Himself to Adam and Eve and, and to Enoch. God had revealed something of Himself to Job. Uh, we would seen God reveal Himself to people before. But there's something wonderful that happens in Exodus 25. This is where the Bible just begins to break open for us. And it really, Exodus 25 to the end of the book, really becomes again the Matthew or the keystone of the rest of your Bible, especially of the Old Testament. Because from here on, every writer of the Old Testament will keep coming back. God with us. God with us. And here's where it began. Because God wasn't just going to be revealing of Himself to them, but He would abide with them in the wilderness. 
He would be with them. He would dwell with them. And this was his desire. And secondly, not only is it a resolve of God to be with, to meet with his people, I will meet, but also found in verse number 44 that the holiness of God would be in the midst of his people. The word consecration, by the way, that we find in our Bibles it could be defined this way. It is the separation of oneself from things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. To set something else, something apart. And here we find that this meeting place, this tabernacle, would be a place of worship. It would be a place of reconciliation through God's holiness. It won't be that man will become sacred or become clean by his good intentions. It won't be that man will be really sincere and and just really have an honest heart and, and really even be transparent about his lostness and his sinfulness that will make him holy. It will be that the consecration of God. God will need to consecrate. God will need to determine that things will be holy and sacred and set apart. And listen, listen, religions are replete throughout this world where man sets apart his own determination of what is holy and what is clean and what is not holy and what is not clean. But listen, it is God alone who has this divine right and, and divine prerogative. God makes people holy and those who are not cannot be made holy apart from His means. It is God who consecrates this meeting place. Listen, it is God who is doing a work of sanctifying in your life. It is God who is taking out the trash in your heart, shoveling the stuff from the stall. It is God who must purify our hearts and our lives. And if it's not God, then it's not pure. God cannot be anything but holy. God is set apart from His creation. He is set apart even from mankind. And so, in this approach, God is coming to Moses. He is coming to the people of Israel. God's approach to man is holy. God doesn't compromise any of His character. He doesn't soften any of His obligations. But God's approach to man is holy. And listen, that means that man's approach to God must be holy as well. If we're to approach God, if we're going to be in God's presence, then we need to be holy. Because God will not be defiled. He will not be touched. He will not be approached in unholy means. And so there raises a, a great chasm, an insurpassable gap. The problem lies here and, and it's revealed, it's modeled here, it's illustrated here in Exodus chapter 25. If you're reading and if you know anything about man, we are not holy. So there's a significant problem. So God must make a way. God must make a way. It has to be a holy way because He's a holy God and man has to become holy to be in His presence. And so here God begins to reveal what this what this will look like. Listen, there's no other tent. There's no other meeting place. There's no other altar where man can meet with God. It has to be entirely separate and it's by His design that it's different. But the third resolve that we see in this passage is that there is a desire, there is a resolve of God to transform His people. So He he will consecrate this meeting place, but He will also Significantly, to the point of this passage, he will consecrate his servants. And this is found in verse number 44. I will consecrate the sons of Aaron. God will not be served by unholy vessels. Whether they be symbols and elements used for worship or servants of worship. God will not be served by unholy vessels. God sets apart those who will worship and meet with Him. You and I have been set apart, called out from the world to worship our holy God. God is in the business of transforming our lives, of consecrating us, of making us into a holy people. By the way, I trust and pray that this morning as a growing believer, your desire is to become more holy. Your desire is to become more Christ-like. Your desire is to give yourself unto the work of God in transforming your heart and your life. So that more and more you reflect the holiness of God. God's desire is to be served by a holy people. 
But it is God who consecrates the heart, not ourselves. Not our self-determination. Give up on your antics. Give up on your strategies. Give up on your schemes to make yourself impressive to God. God will not be impressed by you. He gave Moses the, um, the instructions of all of these elements, the fixtures, the furniture, the tabernacle. God gave him all the dimensions and gave him all the provision. So too, God has given you everything that is required, everything that is needed in his indwelling presence to make you more and more into a likeness of the one whom he has set his supreme love on, that is his son, Jesus Christ. God desires that his people be holy. And Aaron's sons had no ability to make themselves holy under this calling. They had no ability to consecrate themselves. It needed to be God who would consecrate. It needed to be God who would dedicate them unto this purpose. Now listen. There are times when we come across this idea of being servants of God, being dedicated to something. Sometimes this even translates into someone's personal testimony. Sometimes we hear, and we've used this language perhaps, where we say, you know, I I came to Christ at a certain time and I, I dedicated my life to God. We use that, and that's fair. But when we recognize that consecration is something that God does, that dedication is something that God does, I think we can break it down better in this way. You see, when a person comes to Christ by means of faith, trusting in God's saving faith, saving grace, it is not a dedication of a person to the Lord. The idea that is often testified among Christians and well-meaning people is, is, well, let me tell you, I dedicated my life to the Lord when I was such and such. It's really dismantled, this idea is dismantled biblically when we understand that it is the Lord himself who is the one who dedicates his servants, such as Aaron's sons to the priesthood. You see, the Christian's whole life is something that the blood of Christ has already dedicated to serve him in holiness and faithfulness. Perhaps a better term might be better said, I I surrendered my life unto his dedication. Because you and I can't hold a candle to the dedication and resolve of God to pursue Christ-likeness in our lives. You can dedicate yourself all day long, but it is God that is the one who truly is dedicated to transforming your life and becoming a holy child of His. So there's a transformation by God of His people, but fourthly, there's a fourth resolve, and that is the desire to be known. The desire to be known. I will dwell in verse 45 and I will be their God. There's something really profound needs to be said here, and that is that gods, ancient gods, even gods made of this world today, listen, gods didn't dwell with their people. False gods didn't dwell with their people. They were always far off. They were always distant. Sure, in Egypt there was the worship of the sun and the worship of the Nile and all these, these things of creation in, in Egypt, but, but all of them were still just at an arm's length. Not only did, did gods, false gods, not dwell with their people, but false gods also, listen, didn't want to know their people. Listen, the idols of this world don't want to know you. They demand service from you. They demand sacrifice. The idols of this world, the the idols of your heart, they don't want to know you. False gods don't want to know you. They're not personal. They're not interested. This is the glory of biblical Christianity, by the way. This is such great news. We get to tell the world, listen, there's a God and He's not far off. And He's here 
Anyone's to know you, anyone's you to know him. This is glorious. This is freeing. This is unique. This is special. This is what sets apart biblical Christianity from all the religions of the world is that God can be known anyone's to know. And he's interested. He has a resolve about it. And he wants to not, not just be known and know, but he wants to dwell. He wants to live with. He wants to be in the, the life of. He wants to be, he wants to be part of the life. He's interested in it. He's personally invested in it. And so we see it in the elements used in these chapters. The tabernacle is, is presented as a mobile place because God's people would be mobile. But think of this, the heavenly king then would be, would be here in the wilderness and here the Ark of the Covenant would be given as almost like a footstool to the king of heaven. The draperies and curtains that surrounded the Holy of Holies there in the middle of the tabernacle would be covered with, with symbols of the cherubim. Here this great king would be magnified in the tabernacle. He would dwell amidst his people. Inside the tabernacle, you would look around and you would be reminded, not of the wilderness, but of the heavens and the heavenly hosts, bowing and paying obeisance unto the King of Kings, there in the tabernacle, inside you recognize you aren't just in the presence of a God, you're in the presence of the God of God and the King of Kings. And this would be symbolized that you wouldn't be able to escape the imagery as you would behold all of this. It would be a portrayal of God as the heavenly king in the background of all of this meeting place. And so when Jesus and John and others would preach the gospel as it would break forth in, in our New Testament, in our Bibles, they would, they, would preach, they would preach the message like this. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. That one that was symbolized through the curtains, through the gold, through all of the, the fixtures and through the approach and the ceremonies and the sacredness and consecration of all of the elements and the servants, all of that now is here, is here, it is outside of the temple. It is not in that temple in Jerusalem. I am here now. Looking upon me, you see the God of heaven. He will not be the God of the Egyptians. He will be the God of those who He will redeem. Listen, the unredeemed of this world do not know God, Jesus Christ, as their God and King. And verse 46, I love how God says the result of all of this will be. Look down at verse number 46. And they shall know. They will know. They will know. There are 15 times when this is used in the Old Testament. 15 times when God says, they will know. Two times in Isaiah and 13 times in Ezekiel. Then they shall know. And each of the occurrences of then they shall know follows a terrible announcement of judgment on the unbelieving. Each one of the occurrences, then they shall know, follows a, a terrible announcement of judgment upon those who will not obey and those who, who will not believe. What is taking place in the tabernacle? Judgment. Who's receiving the judgment? The lambs. So when the sacrifices have been offered, when redemption has been paid, when atonement has been granted, then they shall know. Why is it that Egypt doesn't know God? Why is it that our world, our lost world, doesn't know God? Because they're still under judgment. But if they will place their faith in the land that's provided for, in the temple of God, then they shall know. Then they shall know. What's separating the lost from knowing God? Judgment. 
judgment. This prophecy, then they shall know, is the first of this string of prophecies. It's really the confluence of judgment followed by blessing. Its order of being at the end of the instructions for the tabernacle gives us reason to consider. Why was this place at the end of the instruction here uh, before we find a break and the execution of these instructions? Why is it that God saves all of from, verse, from chapter 25 to chapter 30, and now at the end says the purpose for all of this. First purpose was dwell, but now the final, very personal purpose gets, gets centralized, it gets, it gets uh, more dense, it gets more acute. They shall know me when I dwell with them. Why is it that God waited until the end? May I suggest this? Because first comes sacrifice, then comes fellowship. No sacrifice, no fellowship. Because first comes blood, then comes redemption. First comes revelation, then comes worship. First the tent, then worship. First the way provided, then the grace imparted. First atonement, then relationship. First cleansing, then abiding. They will know. Because God will reveal himself like never before. And if God doesn't reveal himself, then they won't know. And so Moses was faithful, according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, listen, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Exodus becomes the testimony of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says. God was revealing more of His redemption plan. And the writer of Hebrews says that Moses was laying out a pattern that was to be Christ. Christ was the pattern, listen, before Moses was given as the pattern. That is, Christ was already the one that was the tabernacle before the tabernacle became here on this earth. The tabernacle, although it appears here on on our timeline, preceded the incarnation of Christ. It was the shadow. It was the after of Christ. The imprint or the mirror image. Christ is the tabernacle that was before the tabernacle. Now listen, Stephen, in his dying breaths, drew the attention of this to those who were stoning him. His testimony was that Jesus is the greater tabernacle. That this Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they crucified, was the greater tabernacle. Okay? That the the temple was was not ever meant to replace God. Listen, religion and ritual was never meant to replace God. Ceremony was never meant to replace consecration. And so in in, in Stephen's dying breath, he says in Acts 7.44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he has seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find the dwelling place of God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And then Stephen says, if you mistook the temple for God. That it is if you placed your faith in anything other than Jesus Christ, you missed what God was saying. And he says in verse number 51 in Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That is, you resist what the Spirit of God has been meaning to teach you 
All this time, it wasn't about religion. It wasn't about routine. It wasn't about ceremony. And it wasn't even about your sincerity. How deeply sincere you are about the beliefs you hold. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, the people rushed upon Stephen and they gnashed their teeth at him and began to stone him. You see that Stephen is saying that God is not confined to a temple or a tabernacle as the leaders of Israel had come to teach. The people of Israel had come to put God in a box. And Stephen was saying that Jesus was God's climactic end of self-disclosure to His people. In Jesus, God has taken up residence among His people. No longer in the tabernacle, no longer in the temple, now with us. God is here. I am here. You remember God said to the people when when water came gushing out of the rock, I am what? Faithful. When Jesus, God has taken up residence among His people, and John indicates that in his prologue in John 1.14, John says, and the Word of God tabernacled with us. That's the words that's used. He became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt. Praise God. Jesus dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we began our study of Exodus, learning, we learned that God would be for His people. He would be for His people, the great I Am. Remember, I still am. I haven't left you. I know you're in Egypt for 430 years, but I haven't left you. I still am the God of Abraham. And then we learned that God commanded them to be, to be consumed by God, that they would find God to be enough. They would eat the lamb, remember? They would keep the lamb, roast the lamb, eat the lamb, be redeemed by the lamb. It was enough. And then we learned that, that God was to find that God would be enough, that they would eat the bread. The bread was enough. They didn't have to store up bread for the next day. It would spoil. Just eat today's bread. It's enough. God's enough. It's always going to be enough. We would learn then that they were to find that God would be faithful. Drink the water from the rock that follows you through the wilderness. And so today, we find that God is saying, I still am I still am enough. Eat. Drink. And I am here. I am here. And the nearness of God was realized in the provision of God for man to be near Him. God needed to provide the way for man to be near Him because God is holy and man is sinful. The provision of the tabernacle teaches many things about the redemption of God. And here are a few that we need to consider today. Number one, God has drawn near to people like you and I. You, and you say, what do we do with this passage this morning? Here's, here's how we respond, I suggest, to this passage this morning. God has drawn near to His people like you and I. Mark the spot. Mark the spot. Where is God? He is here. Secondly, God has sanctified then His nearness. Enter into His cleansing. God is here. Let Him wash you. Let Him cleanse you. Thirdly, God has carried the weight for the cleansing. Lay your sins upon Him. God has carried the weight for our cleansing, the means, the method for your cleansing. Lay your Stop Stop trying to do something good to make up for what you've done that's wrong. Stop excusing what you've done. Lay the guilt on Him. 
He's made the way for cleansing. Then fourthly, God has appointed His servants. He has appointed you. Serve Him in gospel truth. Give your life to serving Him. You are a sacred, consecrated vessel by God. Your dedication has failed many times. Your self-resolve, your passion, it, it wavers. But God's resolve hasn't. And He has desired to use you no matter how many times you've failed in your dedication. He's resolved to use you. He's resolved to use vessels like you and I who live in the middle of the wilderness. So God has appointed His servants to serve Him in gospel truth. And fifthly, God is delighted to dwell in the wilderness. I love how God was not waiting till they got to the promised land till he gave the instructions to build a meeting place. God's not waiting for you to have your acts together until you can meet with him. That's the gospel, isn't it? God's not waiting until you have everything, all the ducks in a row, you have your life all cleaned up, you're in the promised land and you're, you're so much better. God delights. He doesn't just put up with. He delights to meet His people in the wilderness. Now I'm taking it from the picture of all this. None of us are in the promised land yet. So we're all in the wilderness. Where God likes to meet with you in your wilderness. Someday we won't be in the wilderness. In Revelation 21, verse 3 and five, through 5, we were just reading this morning, God will delight to dwell with His people. He'll be, he'll be there without any inhibition, any veil. God delights to dwell. Let's pray.